0: Let's go, ahead and, uh, let's go ahead and pray, and then we're going to jump into today. Um, the next eight weeks, we're going to be covering Leviticus, so it's going to be a really fun um, eight weeks. I really am excited about it, and hopefully by the end of today, um, we're all looking forward to uh, diving a little bit more into um, Leviticus. Let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll get started. Father, thank you so much for bringing us here this morning, and thank you for the opportunity to look into your word. Um, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have communicated to us clearly in our, in our own language. So that we can know you, and so we can know how to draw near to you. Lord, I pray that you, that, we would help us to, that you would help us to treasure your word, all of your word. As the psalmist says in Psalm 119, that we would love your word, that we would love the law, that we would meditate on it day and night, that we would love all of it, that we would treasure it. Um, Lord, I pray that you would help us to, um, to see what you have for us in Leviticus more clearly, <clears throat> through this these next few weeks and that um that you'd be honored in that that it would enrich our lives and um, I praise in Jesus name. Amen. Okay, so for those of you that don't know me, I think I know everybody in here though, so I won't introduce myself. I'm James just introduce myself um, So as I was thinking about what to teach uh, For the next eight weeks, uh, you know mark came to me and said hey, it'd be great if you taught something during equipping hour uh, we don't know what that is, so whatever ideas you have, we're open for it. I said, okay, so I threw out a few different ideas. Um, he wanted me to make sure that I wasn't just being the missions guy. So every time I speak, I'm talking about missions or making disciples or evangelism and things like that. That's good, and I love teaching on that, and I would do that all the time every day if I had the opportunity. Um, but I also enjoy other things. Like, I also enjoy studying... Um, theology, and so some of the things I brought up were like, you know, could we do doctrine of God or some type of head of system, systematic theology, and um, but you guys have been studying that kind of stuff, and then um, I like to read, and one of the books that I've been reading recently that has really helped me in, in understanding the overall storyline of scripture, and specifically Leviticus, is this book called Who Shall Ascend the Mountain of the Lord by El um, Michael Morales. <clears throat> He's a Presbyterian guy, uh, Presbyterian scholar at Greenville Presbyterian um, in Greenville, South Carolina, and read his book. I was encouraged to read it by a few different people, and man, for me, it just uh, lifted the haze that I often experienced as I approached um, the book of Leviticus, as I was, like, trying to trudge through it and get through it in my Bible reading plan, and, you know, a lot of Leviticus is the place where Bible reading plans go to die, right, right? And so, but this book really helped me to just understand. Here are the main themes in Leviticus, and here's here's why all this weird stuff is there. Um, <clears throat> why, if I ask you guys, why is it imp- important to study Leviticus? Why should we spend the next eight weeks in order to understand Leviticus more deeply? What do you guys think, Liz? Mhm. God's holiness. <clears throat> yeah, it, we can learn more about God's holiness by understanding Leviticus more deeply, right? And how to approach him. What else? Mhm. Yeah, as you read Leviticus, you get this idea that God really cares about everything. Um there's so many details in there, meticulous, it sounds pointless at some points to us because we just don't understand the holiness of god and and how much he does care about all aspects of our lives, right, and the significance of of those little things too. What else mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. <clears throat> We understand, the, the more we understand the law, the more we're going to realize how much we need the gospel, right? And so um, understanding Leviticus is going to help us draw that out as well. I think, too, just, just plainly is that we struggle with Leviticus, don't we? I think most of us struggle with Leviticus. And so that's a good reason to study it, right? That's a good reason to study it. What are some questions and or struggles that you guys encounter as you approach Leviticus. I'm gonna um, make a note of these things because I want to make sure that we kind of cover them as we go through in the next eight weeks. And then I'll kind of lay out my uh, my outline for the next several weeks. What are some struggles or questions that you have as you work through Leviticus on your own? Okay. What is moral law? there's some there's some assumptions in that question, right? Um, right, right. Mhm. So some of you guys might have heard of like the tripartite breaking up of the law, there's the moral, the cer- the civil ceremonial. Um uh some people agree with that, some people don't. So is there that break up and then which how do you break it up? Yeah. Why is it important to me? Right? Why is it important to me? Cuz we can read through Leviticus and it feels very foreign. Right? And and so why is this important to me? That's good. Mhm. <laughs> yeah, <clears throat> for me that's perplexing because I go to I go to like Psalm one nineteen, and he says, "Oh how I love your law!" Right? I meditate it day. I meditate on it day and night. It's my meditation day and night. It's like he he's talking about the law. And I think he's referring in large part to Leviticus and the, and the Pentateuch, the Torah, right? And so, but he says, he can say, I love it. And, and so how do we understand Leviticus in a way that it's not, it doesn't make us weary, it doesn't make us burdensome, it's not burdensome for us, we, we can love it, you know? Because even someone in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant could say that. Mm-hmm. Anyone else? I think for me like I read through the when I read through Hebrews and I see like you know how Christ is related to the old covenant and I see um the priesthood I kind of get that, you know, the 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 mediator between God and man. I get that. Um the blood sacrifices, I kind of get those. Like I get the day of atonement in Leviticus 16 that makes that makes some sense as a Christian. Like I see the the scapegoat and we're going to talk more about this in in more detail so we understand that sacrifice even more clearly, but I kind of get those pictures. You know, Jesus is the sacrificial lamb that takes away the sins of the world. I understand that. When I go to Leviticus, and I, and, but there's not, it's not just Leviticus 16. There's like Leviticus 1 through 15 and then following, and there's all these laws that talk about clean and unclean, and then there's uh, other offerings that don't necessarily involve blood. There's grain offerings, Right? And, and then what's, what's, what's a guilt offering? And, you know, there's all these different provisions for, you know, if you commit a sin and you intend it, and then if you, don't, if you commit a sin and it was an accident, and then um, if you touch something that's unclean, if you are unclean, you know, all these different things. Is it the same thing to be unclean and sinful? Well, not necessarily because it's not a sin to be a woman, and there's things that, are, that make a woman unclean. Do you guys know what I'm saying? that are not sinful, right? So that wh- what's, what's up with all this language and why is it important to God? And I think those are some questions that I'm, that I'm wanna wrestle with over the course of the next several weeks. We're not gonna wrestle with any of them today. Um, today is basically just a setting a foundation. Uh, we wanna build a foundation hermeneutically um, in, in understanding you know, how are we gonna come at Leviticus, what's our goal for how we're gonna interpret it. We're not just gonna walk chapter by chapter um, we're going to be taking more of a helicopter view and then digging in when we need to dig in so we can understand some of the bigger themes that come out in Leviticus. And actually, even before we get to Leviticus, we're going to start in Genesis and Exodus so we can understand some of the themes that come out there. Then we can understand Leviticus more clearly when it's in its con- proper context. Does that make sense? So here's kind of the, the overview. Today, we're going to build out the, the, that kind of contextual stuff. Next week, we're going to talk about Genesis. The week after, Exodus. And then we're going to get into Leviticus, the first part of Leviticus, and then we're going to get into the Day of Atonement, and then the second part of Leviticus, the second half of Leviticus, and then eventually in the last week, we're going to be talking about how does that, what are the implications for us today and for the church. Um, Now, if you read this book, like I said, um, here's the book right here, Uh, Caleb, I stole this off your shelf, right? Here's what it looks like. I only have the digital copy because I don't carry that many physical books anymore, Um, It's called, Who Shall Ascend the Mountain of the Lord? A Biblical Theology of the Book of Leviticus. Um, I highly recommend that you read it. It's thick. It might seem very academic. There are aspects of it that are. Um, But if you don't, if you read it, and you don't try to understand every single word in it, because you probably won't, and I would say you don't have to, just kind of pound your head through the wall, and then once you come out the other side, then you're gonna, you're gonna understand Leviticus a little bit more clearly, a little bit a little bit better. But at the same time, as you're reading it, understand that this he's a Presbyterian. He's not a Baptist. So a lot of the a lot of the things he's gonna draw, some conclusions are gonna be more Presbyterian-y. And we might not agree with everything that he has to say, but that's fine. He's gonna draw a lot of really good conclusions that are just biblical and solid um, theologically that we can use and, and um, for the enrichment of our lives. Okay, that's kind of the overlay of the, of, the, of the next few weeks, um, on your notes there, you have some definitions, or you don't have definitions, you have some words, um, phrases that we need to define. So let's start with this one, biblical theology. When I say biblical theology, in this course, we're going to be doing biblical theology. When I say that, what do I mean? And Caleb taught on biblical, who, who took uh, his class on biblical theology? Okay. So here's a test to see how well Caleb did. What is biblical theology? Okay, the study of God via the Bible. Good. When I say biblical theology, just yes or no, do I mean theology that is biblical? It's a trick question. Yeah, it's kind of, right? We want to do theology that is biblical, but that's not, that's not simply what it is meant by biblical theology, Right? Here's one definition of biblical theology that's given by D.A. Carson. I think it's helpful. Caleb gave this in his class. He told me that this is the definition to use. I want to use the same definition. Um, biblical theology seeks to uncover and articulate the unity of all the biblical texts taken together, resorting primarily to the categories of the texts themselves. Okay, I'm going to repeat that again and slower, so you guys can write this down if you'd like. Biblical theology seeks to uncover... And articulate the unity of all the biblical texts taken together, resorting primarily to the categories of the texts themselves. Okay? Um, There's some assumptions in here that the Bible is a unified book, right? And so we want to look into the categories of the texts themselves and bring out the theology that the Bible builds for us. Okay, so another way of saying it is it's the theology of the Bible as it's developed throughout progressive revelation. Okay, so we're going to be tracing the theology of the biblical writers in their historical context according to progressive revelation. Now, um, we're going to get to pre- progressive revelation in a second. <clears throat> Here's a good quote from um, Andreas Kostenberger, uh, who's a theologian. I actually read, had to read his book in seminary on hermeneutics. He says this, he said, biblical theology flows naturally from careful biblical interpretation as it tries to explore the teachings and major themes of scripture within the orbit of the overall biblical storyline. And we're going to get to why that's important for our study um, in a bit. So I mentioned progressive revelation. Who can can, uh, define progressive revelation? What does that mean? Sure. Mm. <clears throat> yeah, okay. Revelation about heaven. So you gave a good example. Heaven. Does the Old Testament say a lot about heaven? Not really, right? Not really at all. We can infer some things from the Old Testament about heaven, but the, we really get a lot of clarity in the New Testament, right? About heaven, about lots of themes. Does, does Genesis 1 to 3 specifically, does that tell us about the temple? Another trick question. It kind of does, but not directly, right? I think, and we're going to see it start seeing this next week, I think that if you are reading Genesis 1 to 3 from an Israelite perspective, you know, um, sitting under Moses, having seen the tabernacle built, no understanding the themes that are there and, and the importance of that, the significance of that. And then you read, you hear Genesis 1 to 3 read out loud. I think you're gonna draw some conclusions there that relate Genesis 1 to 3, the Garden of Eden specifically, to temple language, tabernacle language. Right? Now, does it tell us everything we need to know about the temple in Genesis 1 to 3? That theme is developed throughout scripture, right? So that developing or or building upon. In revelation is what we call progressive revelation. The idea that re- the revelation of God to man progresses throughout the Bible. Here's a, <clears throat> here's a quote by J. A. Alec Motyer. Motyer? Motyer? He says this, progressive revelation is not a movement from error to truth, but from truth to truth. So we don't go from, here's some error that the Bible clears up later. No, what the Bible says before, it might be incomplete, but it's, it might be a shadow, but it's going to move from truth to truth. it's still true, right? <clears throat> so it moves from truth to truth, the lesser to the greater, the provisional to the permanent, the inadequate to the perfect. indeed, cumulative revelation might be a preferable term, that idea of building on on each other on itself, right? When we do biblical theology we're we're tracing the theology of the Bible as, it, as we are as we're, we're dealing in. In accordance with progressive revelation, what does this this author say about what this author said? What is what this author is saying now? How does that build on what he said before? And we're watching the theology build in the Scripture. Okay, next definition: <clears throat> the Pentateuch. What's the Pentateuch? First five books of the Bible, right? Pentas, five. Pentateuch, first five books of the Bible. Um, it's also referred to as the Torah. And the law. These are different ways we can refer to the Pentateuch. Concentric. Concentric. This is a word that's pretty important in the book. Um, and I actually had to look it up just to make sure I was right. What does the word concentric mean? Circles that, that are joined with a common center. Right? So we, st- we think of concentric, we think of concentric circles, right? One circle around another, around another, and around another. They all have the same center point. So concentric is the idea of having a common center. So in terms of the Pentateuch, what we're going to talk about today is that the books are organized concentrically. That means that the books build on each other, and they have, they have a, a common center. Okay? <clears throat> another uh, term that's often used to kind of convey this Um, or to capture this idea of concentricity, is um, a chiasm. You guys heard of a chiasm? Right? So it's, you know, often used in the Psalms. It's an organizational tool that biblical authors would use to point to the center. Right? Yeah, it's basically like sandwiching. Yeah, exactly. So you might have one line, the first line corresponds to the last line, and then the second line corresponds to the second-to-last line, and then it culminates or climaxes in the center, and what's the point of the chiasm? Why do we, why did they organize it like that? To point out what's important, and what's important? The center, the middle, right? So what we're going to see is that, that, that <clears throat> the Pentateuch has a concentric organizational structure that is meant to point us to a, a specific center And then we're going to talk about what that center is. Um, So let's go into the next section of our notes. Any questions so far? We're just kind of building out a foundation, right? Now we're gonna now we're gonna take like an over overhead view, very high view, um, looking at the structure of the Pentateuch in general. So Leviticus within the Pentateuch. So before we develop the biblical theology of Leviticus, let's first analyze the structure okay, of the whole Pentateuch itself. So in this uh, chart that you see here, we're just looking at how the themes within the books themselves, kind of like the core themes that come out as you read Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, how they can kind of point us to the center, which is, I'm going to argue, Leviticus. Okay, so look at Genesis. So what do we see in Genesis? We see separation from the nations, right, via the covenants. Um, via the covenant made with Abraham through his seed we see blessing, seeing the land you're going to leave this land, you're going to go to this land descendants and the land at the end of Genesis right, we're going to talk more in depth about, about what's being developed there in the future. Exodus, then what do we see in Exodus? Israel's desert journeys um, apostasy and plagues Pharaoh and magicians, the firstborn and then Levites so these are all things that we see within Exodus, right? And then Leviticus is sacrifices, cleanliness, holiness. Okay, now, mirroring that other that first half, Numbers also talks about Israel's desert journeys. As you guys study Numbers, don't you doesn't it sound like a lot of the same stories? But we know that like one is journeying to Sinai and then one journey one is journeying from Sinai And then it ends with them in Moab, right? So we see this mirroring happen. So Israel's desert journeys, apostasy and plagues, uh, Balak and Balaam, the firstborn, and then we see the Levites again talked about. And then Deuteronomy, separation from the nations, blessing, seeing the land, quite literally again, descendants and the land at the end of Deuteronomy. So we see these kind of big themes, and so we see that Leviticus is the the thematic center of the Pentateuch itself. There are various ways of organizing this. Um, Look at the next chart there. Do I have in parentheses on yours? Who shall ascend page something, page nothing, underneath your chart? Okay, I took it out. Because I was gonna cite every single page that I pull these charts from, But then I just said, these are all from the same book. So if you want to see these charts, you can go to the book. They're all from there, okay? I didn't make these myself. Um, Well, I technically did, but I was looking at his while I was making them myself. Um, Okay, so here's another way of organizing it. So you have Genesis, the prologue. So Genesis is really, it really is a prologue, right? It's setting you up, setting Israel up, right? Right? It sets Israel up. Exodus, they leave Egypt. They build a tabernacle. Leviticus is the tabernacle services. uh, Numbers, they dedicate the tabernacle. They're preparing to enter Canaan. And Deuteronomy is the epilogue, uh, Moses' final speech before they go into the the land. So both of these charts just kind of show really broad overview, helicopter view of the themes that are going on in the Pentateuch, Leviticus at the center. Okay, this is kind of fun. If we look If we kind of take Genesis and Deuteronomy out, let's look more specifically at some texts that show us that Leviticus is the center. Okay. So let's look at Exodus and Numbers specifically, and let's see how they mirror each other. And they're going to go like, we're going to go Exodus, Numbers, Exodus, Numbers, Exodus, Numbers, and then kind of work our way to the center. Okay? So um, let's, let's get our place in Exodus. This was kind of fun for me to do um, in my study, just shooting from one book to the next and just seeing these connections that we can draw. Okay, Exodus 15, 22 to 25. Now, you guys don't have any words next to your verses, right, I'm gonna tell you the words that I have next to mine so we can can see these connections a little more clearly if you guys wanna fill that in, then you guys are free to fill that in. I would recommend filling it in or making very strong mental notes Okay, Exodus 15, 22 to 25. Can I get a volunteer to read that passage? And then can I have another volunteer to get ready to read um, Numbers 21, 16 to 18? One volunteer. Okay, you got, you got Exodus? And then can I get another volunteer to read Numbers? Okay. So let's go Exodus first. Okay, now let's go uh thanks next. next let's go to uh Numbers twenty-one, sixteen to 18. Mm-hmm. So next to the Exodus passage, you can write transformation of water from bitter to sweet, that's just what that story is about, and then uh, next to the Numbers passage down at the bottom, Numbers 21, 16 to 18, it's the spring, right, so the spring of water that comes out. See the comparison there? Uh, Thematically, look at, uh, now let's go to Exodus 17, verses 1 to 7. Exodus 17, verses 1 to 7. I'll read this one. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the, pe- and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with, with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel and taking your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb and you shall strike the rock and water shall come out of it and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel and he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying... Is the Lord among us or not? Okay, now, go from that passage and go back to Numbers, and we're going to go to Numbers uh, 20, verses 1 to 13. Numbers 20, verses 1 to 13. And the people of Israel, the whole congregation, came into the wilderness of, of Zin, in the first month, and the people stayed in Kadesh, and Miriam died there and was buried there. <clears throat> now there was no water for the congregation, and they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. And the people quarreled with Moses and said, this is a lot, this is a lot of the same stuff, isn't it? Would that we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why have you brought this assembly, brought the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness that we should die here, both we and our cattle? And why have you made us, up, made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It is no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. Then Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces. And the glory of the Lord appeared to them. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron, your brother, and tell the rock tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the, of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. And Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he had commanded him. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Hear now, you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice, and water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank and their livestock. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me, To uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. These are the waters of Meribah, where the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord, and through them he showed himself holy. See the similarities? Right? Big themes here, right? So, is it the same event? No, it's not. This is like, this is separated by decades, right? But, is Israel doing a good job of learning their lesson? No, not at all. And is Moses doing a good job of learning his lessons? Not really. He, this passage disqualifies Moses from taking the people into Canaan. Okay? But what we want to see here is there's, there's, there's common themes. Right? He's going to provide water through the rock. The first one, he tells him, strike the rock. The second one, Moses is ticked off, and he strikes the rock, even though he says, say to the rock. Right? And Moses... Demonstrates faithlessness there, and and, and God just tells him, no, you're not gonna, you're not gonna take my people into the promised land. So this happens. We're not gonna walk through every passage if we had time, we would. But I would say do it on your own, just as a as a as an exercise in understanding the scriptures a little more clearly. Walk from passage to passage and see how how um, Moses is thematically arranging his books. Right now, we read our chat. We read our books. Our Bible and they have chapters and verses. Right? Did, did, did um the original Hebrew have chapters and verses? No, they didn't even have vowel markers. So they didn't have vowel markers. So how did they how did they tell their readers, hey, these are the chapters? They would use structures like this. They would use these, these themes or words that would introduce like this is a new section, right? This is a new section. Um, this is a new, this is a theme that you're going to see again or that you've, saw, that you've seen before and here it is again. And what Moses does is he does this in this mirroring fashion, working backwards or working um, forward and then backwards in order to point at one particular center. I lost my notes here. So this is that idea of con- concentricity, right? <clears throat> it goes all the way. You can see. So let's go to the, let's go to the next section. So Exodus 17, 8 to 16. So for the previous sections, water from the rock for both B and B with the apostrophe, okay? <clears throat> C is, talks about um, the Amalekite-Israelite war. The Amalekite Israelite War. You can see that also in Numbers 14, 39 through 45. So you can put Amalekite Israelite War next to those two. D, chapter 18 in Leviticus, or in, in, in Exodus, talks about leadership relief for Moses, this, ad, this advice to, to raise up elders to help him with, um, with the work. Same thing happens in Numbers chapter 11. Um, Exodus 18 talks about Moses' father in law. <clears throat> Numbers 10, Talks about Moses' father-in-law leaving him. Exodus 19, they arrive at Sinai. Numbers 10, they depart from Sinai. So they arrive at Sinai, they depart from Sinai, and then everything works out from there. Okay? So everything's working to the center, and so then between Exodus 19 and, and Numbers 10, you have Sinai. And Leviticus happens exclusively where? At Sinai. Right? So literally, the book also is framed by a, by a date notice. Go to Exodus 40, verse 17. Exodus 40, verse 17. <clears throat> can I get a volunteer to read that passage? Whoever's there can just read it out loud. Right, so we have first day of the first month of the second year. <clears throat> Numbers 1-1. The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the tent of meeting on the first day of the second month, on the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt. So Leviticus happens in between this, this period, right? <clears throat> it covers that that month where God is giving the law to Moses. So Exodus 40.17 Numbers 1-1. So this is a literary mark that shows us that there's something happening right here in the middle, right? So Leviticus is happening right there in the middle. Okay, so now, what's the center of Leviticus? And what we're going to see is that Leviticus centers on the Day of Atonement. So now you can see the the pyramid that we have there. The base of the pyramid just kind of argues the same thing that we were just talking about. Genesis and Exodus on one side, Deuteronomy and Numbers on the other side. And here's a basic breakdown of how you could break down the book of Leviticus. Now, we don't want to get too much into the weeds here. Scholars are going to disagree. If you go to one commentary versus another, anytime you're dealing with any book, scholars are going to disagree with how they break down passages, right? <clears throat> so people are, it's, it's okay. That's not, the big, that's not a big deal. Both scholars do agree, though, what's at the top of the pyramid, Okay. That it's the day of atonement that everything's cent, uh, centered around. So we're going to deal more in depth about what we mean here. But the way that um, Morales in his book will, will break it down is basically saying, okay, the first half of Leviticus is about approaching God via blood. Okay? We need to approach God. We need to figure out how to approach God. And it's through the sacrifices. Right? Through the, through the, um, the priesthood rituals. This is how you approach God. And then there's the Day of Atonement right at the middle. And then the second half has to do with how do we live in God's presence now? How do we live in God's presence? So it's mainly focused on holiness. And one thing that I really appreciate about, about what he, his, his focus on holiness is that <clears throat> holiness is not an end in itself. The argument in Leviticus is that holiness is, a, is the means to dwelling with God in his presence. So we need holiness to be with God. The question then becomes, how do we get holy? And that's what Leviticus is about. Another picture down at the bottom, um, quite, quite analogically and literally, metaphorically, <clears throat> the, the, the Pentateuch is organized in kind of this mountain form, like this pyramid, right? And at the top of the mountain is the Day of Atonement. That's the, the smoke that's coming out of the tabernacle. <clears throat> that's not actually what the tabernacle looked like. I just looked up tent on Canva. And that's what came up. So the tabernacle at the top, the Day of Atonement. So Leviticus is the tabernacle, Mount Sinai is that period between Exodus 18 or Exodus 19 and, and numbers 10. there. So that's the orga- organizational structure of Leviticus, or of, of the Pentateuch, showing that Leviticus is in the center and the day of Atonement in the center of Leviticus. <clears throat> okay, so what's the theme of Leviticus? We're not going to prove it today. We're going to prove it over the course of the next several weeks. Okay? The theme of Leviticus is what Morales says in his book. The primary theme in theology of Leviticus and of the Pentateuch as a whole is Yahweh's opening a way for humanity to dwell in the divine presence. Yahweh's opening a way for humanity to dwell in the divine presence. Let's go to Psalm 24 to wrap up here. Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Sorry, a psalm of David. That's part of the psalm. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O O, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord Yahweh, strong and mighty, the Lord Yahweh, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, Yahweh of hosts. He is the king of glory. You see that section there, um, verses three to six. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? So we were trying to decide what to call this class. Um, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? That's ESV. That's what we usually use on Sundays. Or who shall ascend the mountain of the Lord? That's NASB and other translations. Um, We were going to go with hill because that's what we use in our translations. The book's called Mountain. Mountain. Caleb said hill was kind of soft. So we were going to go with mountain instead. Right? <clears throat> mountain does kind of sound more, you know what I mean? So, who shall ascend the hill or the mountain of the Lord? What is that hill? What is that mountain? What does that represent? It's the meeting place with God. Who's going who can meet with him? Who can enter into his holy presence? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Verse four, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. I, when we read that passage, it should make us, force us to look outside of ourselves. Not, I don't think the point of that passage is to say, well, that's me. I have clean hands. I'm perfect. I, I, have, I have a pure soul there, right? Who shall ascend? Who shall meet with the Lord? Now, don't we all want to meet with the Lord? We, we have this tension that we want to meet with the Lord. The Lord wants to meet with us, but we, we can't meet with him on our own. Someone with pure, clean hands needs to meet with him. This, is, this, this passage kind of kind of um, brings out the drama and the tension that we have throughout scripture of meeting with God. We're commanded to meet with God. God wants us to meet with him, but we're, we're not able to meet with him, right? We're not able to meet with him. And so over the next few weeks, we're going to try and, like, bring out that, those themes and bring out that drama that, that Moses builds for us in Genesis and Exodus and prepares us for Leviticus. And Leviticus kind of gives us a lot of light. This is how you meet with God. This is how you meet with God. So who shall ascend the Mount of the Lord? Leviticus is answering that question for us. And then we're going to apply that to how we interpret um, some of the things that Jesus does in the New Testament. Good? All right. This was the least exciting week. All week I was like, oh, I want to get to Genesis. I want to get to Exodus. I can't do that. We got to lay a foundation, all right? Um, So if you fell asleep this morning, um, next week is more exciting, I promise. All right, so let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll uh, we'll get ready for uh, service in a few minutes. Father, thank you so much for your kindness to us. Um, We do thank you for the book of Leviticus. I hope that this morning we have um, learned a little bit more about why it's so important. We could overlook it in our Bible reading plans. We could skip it. But in skipping it, we skip so much, re- so much richness of your, of your self revelation to us. We miss your holiness. We miss your program for redemption and how we can meet with you. Help us over the next, com- over the next several weeks to, um, to sit at the feet of Moses, and hear what he has for us in these books, and specifically in the book of Leviticus, that we might understand more clearly what it takes to be in your presence, what we need to draw near to you. We thank you that you are a God who desires to be in fellowship with us, who desires to have communion with us. Who are we that you are mindful of us? We're nothing, but you are a God who has drawn near to us And you're a God that's made a way for that to be so. We thank you so much for your grace. I pray for the service. I pray for um, Mark as he preaches. I pray that he would preach clearly, that he would preach what your text says, and that that you would be honored in the proclamation of your word, that your son would be um, exalted today in song, in prayer, in the reading of your word, in the preaching of your word. I pray that you would bless our fellowship with one another, that we would, um, that we would move towards one another, <clears throat> and that we would encourage one another through prayer, through singing. Um, Lord, I pray that you would be just honored in all day today in our efforts to to bring to you a worship that is worthy of you. I praise in Jesus' name, Amen.